0: Hello and welcome again to the famous CFC podcast, where each episode explores a different story from Chelsea's rich history. My name's Gary Barone and I'm joined as usual by club historian and all-round good guy, Rick Glanville. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you? Not bad. We had a reasonable time up at Aston Villa, didn't we? Oh, we did, yeah. And um,
1: have you ever seen Gerald win the league? Seem to be the burning question on each... Travelling fans'
0: lips, didn't it? Well, as this is a history programme, I thought we'd do a bit of research and study (laughs) some data and analyse some statistics. And I'm pretty sure that I've never seen Gerard win the league. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think you could... uh, You don't need to do much research to learn that, do you? No, in fairness, it was a fairly straightforward one. But we're not (laughs) here to talk about Stevie G. Today, we're talking about the legend of the Chelsea weather vane erected at Stamford Bridge 110 years ago. Seems a long time, doesn't it? And removed six decades later with apparently dire consequences for the club. It sounds like a bad Netflix series or one of those Alfred Hitchcock presents. But Rick, <laughs> what was, what really is the true story here? Well, tells of the unexpected, maybe. Well, after the main stand on the east side of the ground
1: next to the cemetery was removed for a redevelopment in 1972, uh, that's before the, the stand that's there now was erected. The Times newspaper interviews manager Dave Sexton and asked, What happened to the weather vane that used to be on top of the now dismantled stand and that was in the image of the old uh, Chelsea hero, George Hillsden. And uh, Dave immediately realized what uh, the question was for and said, Oh I better go and look so he scurried off from the interview and um, found the weather vane and came back and reassured the the writer that uh, the weather vane was safe and he assured him that he was going to put it back when uh, the new stand was finished because obviously you know it took longer than expected we ran out of money and all sorts of terrible things happened during the the demolition of the old stand and the building of the new one but the reason that Dave Sexton was so concerned is that there was a, a legend, a bit of folklore concerning this weather vane that, should the weather vane ever be removed from Stamford Bridge, that like the famous ravens leaving the Tower of London or the liver birds on the liver building in Liverpool, should they, the weather vane ever leave, Chelsea would cease to exist. Well, as we'll reveal, that never came, that almost came to pass, but didn't. But 10 years later in 1982, 40 years ago this week, salvation came when an exact replica was installed. Uh Aha.
0: So this is where Jake should put in some spooky music effect. (laughs) Exactly. Twilight Zone. Chelsea Twilight Zone. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. We're going to be talking to paint historian Patrick Batty about his investigation yep. of the original Vane, including what Chelsea's exact shirt colour really should be. Yes. But first, where he and where that. was that first Vane put in place, Rick? Well, we think
1: around, well, we know around 1912, 13. Um, unfortunately, there are no references to it in the Match Day programme at all, weirdly. And all the Chelsea board minutes, so directors' meetings and things those ledgers have been stolen from the club and uh, so we have we only have photographic evidence to go on so basically if you look at the uh, the apex of the raised gable of the main stand where the the uh, weather vane stood for 60 years uh, there's nothing there in 1910 11 and um being 13 or 14 feet tall you can see it there in 1913, in images that are around that time.
0: Wow! So when it was removed in 1972, it had stood there for sixty odd years. Yeah,
1: that's right. And why exactly. do we
0: think the weather vane was made in George, George Hillsdon's likeness? Why him? Well,
1: it's actually a sort of the tradition that was passed down. Um, there's the evidence that really that it was erected shortly after he left the club, so you can see that there was a an homage to him in that respect, and. Um, it was always referred to as being modelled on him by the staff at the club and uh, and by fans, older fans. And George was the first great star made in Chelsea. We signed him from West Ham in the summer of 1906. And he went on a pre-season tour of Europe and he just couldn't stop scoring. And he quickly became a phenomenon because he, he brought that into the, the season that followed. So he bagged five goals and he's... Division two debut against Glossop. And that was the first of seven hat-tricks, including six goals. I mean a double hat-trick in an in a FA Cup win against Worksop in January 1908. And that that Getting those six goals is
0: still a club record
1: 114 years
0: later. And to today, there's still only been one other Blues blows who's managed to debut hat-trick. That was Seamus O'Connell, an amateur no less, against, funnily enough, more spookiness, this weekend's opponent, Manchester United.
1: Yeah, exactly. 1954-55 season when we won the league. Um, oh, Kai Havertz, of course, came close because he hit the hat-trick in his third match. But close? No cigar. Uh, but Hillsden was a genuine scoring sensation. I mean, became our, he was our first goal centurion. He hit 100, hammered, in fact, 109 in 164 matches. So quite phenomenal. He was also our first um, England international. Well, first one to be produced by the club. And that when you think about it, that was just a couple of years after we didn't
0: even exist so it's quite crazy the progress he made, really amazing. And even his England record of fourteen goals in eight appearances—that's pretty sensational too. But know, we are I'm... talking about a long time ago, Rick. <laughs> yes. So do we actually know what sort of player Jules was?
1: Well, I think the clue is in the nickname that he had at Chelsea, which was Gatling Gun. Now, uh, just to explain, that's what a Gatling gun is. It's um, like a it was the rapid repeat machine gun of choice back then in in the just the post-Edwardian era. And he was, um, well, I suppose, all about efficient shooting. So think of him as like a Sergio Aguero kind of player. I mean, Chelsea would play this quite scientific method, this intricate build-up uh, amongst the forwards, and then it would go to Gatling gun, and he would slam the ball in the net from anywhere with either foot. So, And it was the rapidity with which he was able to uh, or the, the quickness with which he was able to shoot That earned him that nickname of um, Gatling Gun And um, the Chelsea owner
0: at the time, Gus Mears Used to pay him a pound a goal Wow, luckily he was quite a wealthy man then yeah, exactly. Now, Jules is one of only 10 Chelsea Centurions, and so that's quite a record. Now, if anyone thinks they know the other nine, feel free to tweet in. Ah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, come on, come on. Actually, of the other nine, I saw seven of them play for Chelsea. So yes. that's, that's not bad at all, is it? <laughs> and you're not 100 years old, Gary, let's face not it. Not quite, so they must have been more recent, mustn't they? <laughs> but anyway, Jules Hills the return to West Ham in 1912. But his fortunes were always hiding after that. So why <laughs> did he leave the bridge? Oh well, to continue the uh, your reference, I'm afraid he was forever
1: drinking bubbly at Chelsea. <laughs> like
0: it.
1: He um, like a lot of players that aren't from West London. He liked the bright lights of showbiz and the Kings Road and all around there. It's you know it's very sociable area, and he was too sociable and he didn't look after his well-being really he didn't look after himself and sadly there's a spiral of decline after he left chelsea um he served in world war 1 and was poison-gassed. and in and after that in peacetime he was always short of money running prize raffles around pubs uh, and he even appeared in um like a touring variety show fred carno's uh, touring uh Show of uh, what would you call it? A cavalcade of chaos, perhaps. Um, that was a kind of living table football game, if you can imagine that. And uh, I think they actually that actually appeared at Earl's Court. Doesn't um, sound very
0: dignified, really, no,
1: does it? <laughs> no, how the mighty have fallen. You know, this when you think that he would the adoring public at Stanford Bridge, uh, I think that would they would have been quite sad to see him in such circumstances. And um, yeah, so it was a sad demise and after he died in Leicester in Leicester being in the Midlands in in England after he died there in 1941 uh his the funeral was attended by only four people and he was buried in an unmarked grave but there is a happy ending in that some Chelsea supporters and others got together and crowdfunded a marker for him in 2015 to to um Commemorate his contribution to all the clubs and he played
0: for in England as well. Well, that's um, a relatively happier end to a rather yes. sad story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but back to the legend of the weather vane, and what happened after Stan was redeveloped in seventy two, and George was then removed. Well, frankly, Gary, it's it's hard not to believe the legend and the curse, of them.
1: because um, you can imagine that. So it's taken down in nineteen seventy two. And between then and 1982, that decade was probably the worst in the club's history. You remember that. It was was a terrible time to support the club. You know, there was a breakup of that much-loved, trophy-laden team, Aussie, Huddy, all those people um, that departed Uh, Ray Wilkins, another one of my heroes, I'm sure you loved him as well. He left during that period of time as well. He was a bit of a beacon of light. Uh, So it was a really depressing time and there were two relegations in there. Yes, one promotion as well. Uh, But there was the constant threat of financial ruin caused by the stand that had replaced um, the
0: old main stand and the weather vane. As you say, it's hard not to believe there was some sort of curse. (laughs) Anyway... But 23rd of October 2022 is yeah. the 40th anniversary of the unveiling of an identical replacement Stanford Bridge in a match against Charlton Athletic.
1: Exactly. So it was 1982, 23rd of October 1982, that we played Charlton. And that was when the replacement, uh, an exact replica uh, of the Hillsden weathervane was unveiled for the first time. So what had happened is that, I think Ken Bates must have got wind of this curse and decided to square up to it, as he always did. And he went to an iron foundry near his farm in Buckinghamshire and had it, it had this new one made. It weighed almost a quarter of a ton, apparently. That's more than Mickey Droy. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and had that installed in time for the visit of uh,
0: Charlton. So did it work its magic against Charlton? And <laughs> I asked this question, Rick, yes. the fact that I was actually at the game. Of course, so was I. I don't remember the weather vane being unveiled. but uh, I don't remember a ceremony at all, no. No, which thinking, is a bit yeah, of a I shame.
1: Can't that. I would have loved to have known that fact then. But yes, oh yes, George definitely worked his magic because just five minutes in, Johnny Bumstead opened the scoring with a header from a Gary Locke cross. I mean, you know, Bunners wasn't known for his headers, was he? Let's face it. No, he didn't he get many. A lot of qualities, but um, heading was not uppermost. and
2: Very active in these opening moments. And a lovely ball there for Gary Locke, Turned Back by him. Troy couldn't quite get in there. But Lock with a chance to turn it in once more. And the header. And the goal. By John
1: Um Derek Hales, remember him? Scruffy bloke looked like uh, the model from the 1976 manual, Joy of Sex. I, I disliked
0: him, it's fair to say. He scored against us a lot, didn't he? That is why I disliked him, Rick. <laughs> <laughs>
1: again.
0: Um, he equalised. And now Hales. Now Hales, who
2: usually finishes well and does right now to make it 1-1. On
1: but then there's this... I don't know if you remember it. A 25 yard Colin Pates screamer. Absolute belter from Colin Pates, who was obviously a defender. Um, I, I he may have been playing midfield that day. I can't remember.
2: Sure, in their programme, notes talk about it being a mediocre season for them so far. And they will look for a win here today to improve that situation. Good work here now as Walker gets in the shot and his charged down. Pates will have a tremendous shot.
1: But, um, and then a tap-in by Pop Robson, who we've mentioned on the pod before. Yeah, indeed. Brian Pop Robson made it 3 one
2: Speedy on the far side. That time, Elliot was equal to him in the air. And bangs that one away with his right boot. As far as Mickey Droy. With a bounce on that massive chest. And a good ball here. And Robson. And
1: number three. And... On the basis of that victory, we rose
0: to eighth. But to be honest, unfortunately, the curse was not completely lifted. No. And as we've mentioned before, it was the worst season in in our history. And we've mentioned (laughs) that epic match at Bolton and the Clive Walker goal, which really did help us turn things around. Uh, But back to the original weather vane, what happened to that? Well, um, unfortunately, Dave Sexton lied.
1: <laughs> he didn't have it. Re- he didn't have it reinstated once the the uh, east, the the current east stand uh, had been finished. And um, apparently, it was sent off. This is what I gleaned through the research I'd done talking to people. It was sent off to a, a foundry to be restored because it, you know, it'd been up for six decades, so it was in a pretty bad state. Quite letters missing from the N E W S and you know, the Northeast Southwest and stuff. And um, so it was taken to this foundry for repair, but whether the club was broke and couldn't afford to pay for it or it was just forgotten in all the turmoil that was going on in the, the mid seventies or whatever. Um, but it languished there
0: in this foundry. For fifty years, just gathering dust. Wow! Well, well, but I know you eventually tracked it down, and you met George face to face. So how did that come about? <laughs> yes, I met tin, the tin face of, <laughs> of George Hillston. Um,
1: this was around twenty twelve, and for years I've been trying to work out what had happened to it because I thought what a great artifact to have in the museum. You know, uppermost in my thoughts. Um. So I'd been putting a word out around former employees, fans, uh, and on social media, internet, all over the place. And I, out of the blue, I received a message from a bloke saying, "I hear you're searching for the original Stamford Bridge weather vane. It's sitting in an outhouse at my dad's foundry in Surrey." So of course, I contacted him, verified that it was the 1912, 1913 weather vane, the missing one and uh, took a Chelsea TV crew down, and we filmed the reunion. <laughs> and, um, and shortly after that, um, the club paid the fella for, um, to buy it back. So we now have it in storage, uh, waiting for whatever happens next. Now,
0: Rick, I don't know if this will catch on, but we've got two weathervanes. <laughs> we've got two weather vanes. Yeah, not like two Marios, is it? <laughs> what can we do with the original?
1: Well, to be honest it's in a bit of a state it 's got parts missing there's loads of corrosion um, I suppose you would say George has lost a bit of height over the years he's gone from thirteen feet to about oh, three foot six, something like that and there are there are parts substantial parts of it that are just not there anymore but one of the reasons that I was so keen to bring it repatriate it to stanford bridge was that when we were working on the the new stadium development that roman abramovich was instigating in the planning process the staff that were working on it were very keen to have uh authentic heritage colors so what would what are the genuine colors that the old chelsea from you know the original times would have considered to be genuine so i thought um well what if we examine the layers of paint on this weather vane because it had been repainted several times you could see that and try and work out what they thought back in
0: 1913 was the proper royal blue of chelsea so that's where our guest paint historian patrick batty comes in indeed
2: Hey guys, it's your editor, Jake. We're really quickly going to jump into some ads. Thank you so much to our sponsors. And when we're back, it's all things the weather van with paint expert, Patrick Batsy.
1: Thanks a lot for joining us, Patrick. And um, could you start off by telling us what your typical work is that you do and some of the projects that we might know that you've worked on? Well, um, to be tried.
2: One of the things I enjoy about this job is that no uh, project is, is typical. There are a range of things which all revolve around basically the way that a, a, a sequence of rooms or an object has been painted in the past. Um, structures that you will know, well, obviously, they're place, uh, structures like Tower Bridge. Uh, I carried out the analysis of that about 12, 15 years ago when it needed to be repainted. Because clearly the first question on anything like that is, what colour should we paint it? Mm. Uh, and invariably, and one understands with something as sort of iconic, dare I say, as that, is that no one wants to make the decision. They want to sort of pass the buck, And I'm usually the person who picks up that bark. Uh, and my task always is to establish the evidence of how, in that case, a bridge had been painted uh, with my recommendations, which they can either take or leave, uh, and then at least when somebody complains later, and they always do, uh, <laughs> they, they have the information. I had the same problem with Hammersmith Bridge, and I, I don't just do bridges, but...
1: It sounds like it, Stamford Bridge, Tower Bridge, <laughs> Hammersmith well,
2: Bridge. <laughs> Bridge, of course, <laughs> Yes. Um, well, at Hammersmith Bridge, um, inevitably, there, there were a number of people who didn't like the dark green, that it was painted 20-odd years ago, and they assumed that I was in the pocket of um, Mr Al-Fayed and uh, Harrods, basically, who had their repository on the other side, uh, which was <laughs> nonsense, of
1: course. I'm famous for their green logo, of course. Exactly their green, that. Yeah, They're, they're yeah. very
2: famous sort of dark green that you see yeah. on shopping bags and that kind of thing. But um, other jobs are... Name dropping, of course, uh, Buckingham Palace, Royal Festival Hall, um, but I'm I'm not grand. I mean, I I, I do anything. In fact, uh, dare I say, I'm working for your opposition. I'm probably putting my foot in it at the moment. <laughs> I'm working for Tottenham Hotspur Football Club uh, at present. Uh, they up in North London have a um, an intriguing terrace of early 18th century houses mm. uh, that have been pretty dilapidated for a number of years, and there's a big plan afoot um, coinciding with the uh, new stadium to refurbish them and to use them as part of a new art quarter which is very exciting and so what i'm doing there is looking at these buildings of 1715 uh, and establishing how they were treated in the past and then guiding them on on uh, choices of color types of paint and that kind of thing
1: well, obviously in Chelsea, we don't have to create an art quarter. We have one. Uh, we, we, are, we are an arts district. But would you describe yourself as a like a paint archaeologist? Is you know what kind of techniques and uh, instruments do you work with? Well, I work with um
2: everything from a hammer and chisel for, for, for example, on metal for knocking off flakes of paint to um, viciously sharp knife craft, craft knives. Um, for, for digging paint out of wood dental drills for, for drilling small plugs core samples out of wood um, and then I move on to microscopes an array of microscopes that I examine the samples with so um, a full a full uh, range of, of tools and uh, accessories.
1: I've, I've been to your uh, HQ and I remember you, the the magnification that you were showing me on the project was phenomenal what kind of level do, can you go to with that kind of technology
2: well the, the the most relevant workable is about 500 but usually it's about times 200 that that gives me an idea of course it depends how many times the object has been painted um, because uh, if you blow it up too much you really can't see you, you won't get the overall picture so it's a case of
1: zooming in and zooming out so now uh, talking about your connection with chelsea i think it began in what 2004 And 14, when the the people working on the new stadium were looking for uh, authenticity in the heritage colours and trying to identify what was really Chelsea's royal blue. Is that right?
2: Yes, it was a curious um, moment for me when I was asked um, by by Chelsea to to investigate the colour of their first strip. I mean, I hadn't been to a football match since I was about 13, and so I was <laughs> a bit out of practice. But I'd been a resident, uh, and I have a shop nearby. So Chelsea has been, I suppose, the nearest uh, thing to a local football team for me. So I was very pleased to be in- involved. But actually, the the process of analysis not physical analysis but documentary analysis and reasoning and looking at black and white albeit photographs and that sort of thing was exactly the same as as my other jobs so it was a case of looking at the information sifting through it and establishing um basically in this case what color the shirt was and as you say uh, it was a, a surprising color you mentioned royal blue um but actually the first color was it was a much paler blue
1: beaten that's right well
2: <laughs> funnily enough a, a colour um that uh lord cadogan who is the the, the big landowner uh, nearest landowner and, and much connected with the early days of the club lord cadogan his racing colors his horse racing colors were this color that he brought from school basically he was at eton college and in fact it's the same color uh, one of the colors that cambridge university uses as well
1: yes there's some dispute isn't there who, <laughs> who claims priority in that and uh I think they've kind of reached an accommodation, I think, now, haven't they?
2: They have indeed. Uh, In fact, I've just done a project um, looking at Cambridge blue, and there are two basic blues. There's the the Boat Club blue, blue, which is slightly green, and there's the University blue, which is the one, in effect, that's Eton blue or or Cadogan blue or Chelsea
1: blue. Yeah. And as you remember, um, a few years ago, I worked out that I think they changed in 1907 to Royal blue. And so that, that became the, the greater part of the investigation for you, I think, was to work out what the different colour saturations were that constituted Chelsea's ro- version of royal blue.
2: Well, that's absolutely right. But what was intriguing is that the weather vane that I was asked to look at, the first scheme, uh, the first blue on it was the Cadogan the blue, um, which was basically the earlier strip.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. Well,
2: especially as we think the weather vane went up in about 1913, I think. 19- yeah,
1: that's the photographic evidence. It's not there on the gable of the main stand um, in photos from 1910 11, but it is there from 1913.
2: Exactly. So it is felt. I, I think you put me onto this this track. It was felt that actually um, the, the the figure represented uh, back in 1913 was mm-hmm. of that slightly earlier vintage uh, mm-hmm. of the 1905 1907 season, yeah. and, and typically of a gentleman known as George Hillsdon.
1: Absolutely right. Gatling gun, George Hillsdon. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> His nickname. And so you were sort of one of the things I think was that you the idea was whether your research um, from your, your kind of documentary research married with what you could do once we rediscovered the original weather vane. Um, and, and obviously that required different technique. Can you, can you talk about how you took samples from the the actual weather vane itself and chipped away at poor old George? Uh-huh,
2: exactly that. Yes. Um, well, the weather vane uh, is, is, is tin, basically, or steel. Uh, it, it's quite fragile, and so one has has to treat it, I uh, had to treat it with care. Mm-hmm. So in that instance, what I did was I used a very sharp blade uh, held or pushed at an angle to sort of scoop up and scrape layers of paint off, which I then gingerly stored in a, a sealed plastic bag before embedding them in resin and cutting and polishing and examining them, uh, so that they were held securely under the microscope.
1: It's almost like an autopsy of uh, <laughs> of, of Gatling and George.
2: Well, oh, yes, absolutely, and and it was more than one sample because I clearly I sampled everything from from his hair uh, uh, because there was some suggestion that actually uh, he was wearing a cap.
1: Correct. Uh,
2: Whereas uh, I came to the conclusion because of the paint samples that actually it was his hair with a, a little quiff in front, yes. um, which is uh, and that was black
1: and characteristic of George Hilston's hairstyle. So that was another how interesting portion of evidence uh, that it was that it was based on George. But the, I mean, you know, the, the the kind of the tradition has always been passed down that it was based on George Hilston anyway. But it was great work that you did. And it's interesting that obviously you took, as I remember, samples from different parts of what would constitute the kit well, to try and exactly. identify whether the short color, the shorts, were painted a different color at one stage. Can you talk through some of the insights that you gleaned from the different? I think there were ten layers, something like that.
2: Uh, yes, there were ten layers, um, and I reasoned that we knew that the the weather vane had been removed in 1972. Correct. I guess that the last scheme, the scheme that we were looking at, dated from the mid to late 1960s. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, very simply, um, I divided the, the length of time between 1913 and, like, say, 1967. Um, came up to about 54 years, I think it was, divided that by 10. And so that told me that roughly on average, each scheme had been up there for five to six years. (laughs) So that allowed me, therefore, to conclude or or to suggest that um, uh, the the third scheme was, I think, circa 1926. um, Yes, circa 1926. And that um, scheme nine, for example, was about 1962. So that's how I was getting a rough idea as to what date and therefore what colour had been applied on which element at a particular stage. So, again, it's, it's a process of logic. You just work through all the information, um, look at the samples, compare those from the socks, say, with the turnover of the socks, which were actually a different colour.
1: Yeah. I was that's somewhat nice.
2: Surprised to find both black and white on the turnover uh, of the socks, but then I think again, you told me that they had black
1: hoops. Correct, the black exactly, and it and it changed. And obviously, as you say, if it was being repainted every, uh, you know, five to whatever years, they would have tried to reflect what was the current type of sock. And it varied down the years from black or blue or white or whatever. And um, and so clearly, you were discovering uh, that and and we were able to kind of match, marry the two together.
2: I'm just gonna to say, it, it, it seems that it was just the first scheme uh, that was truly representative of George Hillston yep. and the strip that he would have worn. And then after that, I get the impression that, as you've just said, the scheme being shown, the, the, the colour scheme being shown uh, represented the strip of of that period.
1: And um, were you able to, I mean, were there any other things? Because, of course, this is, it was up there for uh, 50 odd years. And so, uh, well, 60 odd years, sorry. So we were, were you also, you're taking a bit of a slice of London life, aren't you? Were, were there any, was there any evidence of things like smog from the yes. 1950s? And, you know, were there layers of dirt that were curious to you?
2: Absolutely, and that's one of the things, being a Londoner through and through, I enjoy about looking at external samples taken from London buildings or structures, in this case, in that one can literally see You you can see history, you can see events in the paint layers. Now, slightly off the point, because it doesn't really apply here, but one can see on buildings, you can see the years of the First World War and the Second World War, because there are periods of no or poor maintenance, which is shown up by the paint layers being all cracked and crazed. Um, You can certainly see a thin layer of filth um, on the layers uh, uh, externally until literally about 1956, the introduction of the Clean Air Act. Wow. As soon as that happens, and I don't think politicians, I mean, no one praises politicians, I suppose, <laughs> but I don't suppose that anyone has actually said to them that was an amazing piece of legislation, which had sure. an immediate effect on basically the amount of airborne muck that was flying around London. Uh, yeah. But sure, <laughs> you can see it in the paint layers. And George, or the weather vane, whatever we care to call it, uh, indicated exactly Um, when when that filth ceased to be deposited on the the surface.
1: Very interesting. That's fascinating. Now, you've you've talked about the uh, process and you also talked about, uh, I also mentioned about how the documentary evidence married with the evidence of the paint colours that you were able to look at under the microscope as well. Were you satisfied that the two married together and that you had identified what that blue was?
2: Yes, I, I was um, the, uh, the 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 blue, the dark blue, uh, which is a colour that has, I understand, always been known um, at Chelsea as royal blue. It has, yeah. Um, but I also came across, and again, I think inevitably, Rick, you you told me um, uh, the curious, well, perhaps little known fact that uh, King George the sixth had been taken to Chelsea Football Club by his father, Edward VII, in 1907 to see his first match. And apparently that started a lifelong obsession with Chelsea Football Club, it was fantastic. (laughs) Uh, And so it is thought that the colour, the dark blue used at that time, was sort of granted the moniker Royal
1: uh, as a result of that. You sound sceptical about the the kind of the name of... Royal blue. Why is that?
2: I, I'm I'm only sceptical because the, the the problem with naming colours generally is that um, you know if you, if you say pea green, for example, you'll get umpteen different interpretations of it. It's not set in stone. Royal blue really just indicates a dark, slightly reddish blue. But again, it's not as though there's literally one, just one you can put your finger on. But in this case, what I had to do was to suggest, uh, as it were, which blue uh, best represented the one used at Chelsea Football Club, the the Chelsea Royal Blue. And I did that. And in the world of color, one does that by using uh, typically a system known as the Pantone system. Um, It's used largely by by printers and uh, people who have the need to, to indicate a color just by using numbers and letters.
1: Yeah and there are cards aren't there that you yes. that you can kind of match visually to whatever it is that you require. Exactly that. It's a standard a standard accepted all around the world isn't it's it? Standard yeah.
2: and 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 no doubt when the club has its programs printed uh, that number uh, that pantone number is given to the printers and they know exactly. And so the printers know what to do and the clients, just football club gets what they want. That's the whole purpose of a, a standard. Uh, And so yes, I I identified a a standard and and provided that to you in my report, together with the 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 standard for that Cadogan blue. And also there was a red that was you that you use as a club, which had origins in in the early history of the club. So that was my that was my role um, to 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 indicate which colours were relevant to the club.
1: Do you have a? I ought to feel like I ought to do a bit of a drum roll here, but do you have a Pantone number? (laughs) <laughs> for, the, for the for the blue that we can give to fans so they can guarantee yeah. that they've got that authenticity.
2: I, I can, slightly complicated by the fact that Pantone have um, two sets of colour cards. They have what they call a coated one, which has a sort of slightly shiny surface, like gloss paint, if you like, and they have an uncoated one, which has a matte surface, like, say, emulsion paint. And so uh, that is indicated, I'm just about to give you the numbers, uh, with either a C for coated or a U for uncoated. And the the coated, the shinier uh, version of this royal blue is five three four C, and then the uncoated, the, the matte blue, uh, the nearest Pantone number is two eight nine U.
1: Well, I'm going to forward, I'm going to forward that straight to our kit manufacturers at Nike to ensure that we get that authenticity. And I have to say that this has been really fascinating talking to you and I really thank you. you did a great service for us and it's a shame that the new stadium didn't come off and maybe there'll be more work for you in the future if uh, now that we're under new ownership
2: well I hope so because I thoroughly enjoyed you you very kindly uh, or the club invited me to see a couple of matches during that uh, time and I must say I thoroughly enjoyed it <laughs> I didn't think I would I thought that I was too old and and, and past it as far as football went but no <laughs> good fun
1: <laughs> well, thanks very, thanks very much, Patrick, and stay away from Tottenham as much as
0: you can. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Rick. All the best. Fascinating stuff from Patrick Batty. I love the fact that we now know our proper Rogu Pantone. And yeah. I'm all my medium size 289U replica shirt straight away.
1: <laughs> I think I'll go for a, a, an
0: XL. Yeah, I might, I might be XXL, to be honest with <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, one final thing, Rick. Is the replacement weather vane still present? It is 40 years on
1: it's on top of the east stand but i mean nowadays it's hidden amongst uh, all the paraphernalia of the modern day so you know mobile masts and all kinds of cabling so it's really ver- you know barely visible you have to really uh, know where you're looking but it is right in the middle of the at the front of the the current east stand and um as it's the when Man United visit, it's the 40th anniversary of the
0: the uh, its debut. Um, uh, I'm going to doff my cap towards it on Saturday. Fair enough, and maybe thank it for lifting the curse from Stamford Bridge. So the legend of the Chelsea Weatherbone, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> You've been listening to the famous CFC podcast with me, Gary Barone, and him, Rick Lanville, and our guest, Patrick Betty. If you liked it, please tell your friends and family, rate us, and subscribe on whichever app you're using, and help us promote Chelsea heritage. In the meantime, play up, pensioners. See ya. Cheers.